From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Lead poisoning is still a concern in New York State, and here to discuss this with us is Dr. Howard Weinberger, the medical director of the Central Eastern Regional Lead Poisoning Prevention Resource Center. He's also a professor emeritus of pediatrics at Upstate. Thank you for being here, Dr. Weinberger. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So why is lead poisoning still a problem in New York State? Well, we like to think of uh, the problem of lead for children as a public health success um, in that we've really made um, tremendous strides in reducing the burden of lead exposure. Uh, If you remember, in the 1970s, lead was removed from gasoline, and that actually helped everyone in this country. Uh, Late 70s, lead was uh, made uh, to to, uh, prevent lead uh, in household paint, Uh, and then there were a lot of regulations regarding Safe Water Acts in the late 70s, again in the 90s. Uh, There used to be lead in solder in baby food uh, cans. So there used to be lead in toothpaste tubes. I always remind people it used to be easy to roll up a toothpaste tube, and now it's all plastic and you can't roll it up anymore, but that's because they took the lead out. Wow. So we've removed lead a lot in the last 40 years. But unfortunately, uh, lead is a, um, an element that doesn't go away. It doesn't deteriorate in the soil. It doesn't deteriorate in, in nature. And so once it's there, uh, it's there. And that's why it's so useful in industry. Uh, the biggest problem we have in central New York and upstate any of the cities in the Northeast is we have very old housing. Uh, and the housing that was built before the 70s almost all had lead paint inside and, and certainly on the outside as well. So that reservoir of lead is going to be there for many years to come. So is uh, housing and lead, lead paint, is that the main um, source of exposure? By for far, kids? that is it the is. main source of exposure. Every so often you we get a, a blip of excitement. Uh, for example, there was uh, several years ago there were blocks that were imported from China that were painted, had lead paint in them, and everybody got excited about it. And, and it does raise the issue and it allows us to do some education. Uh, there were problems with some Venetian blinds, the vinyl Venetian blinds that had lead in it. So as I say, it's a ubiquitous element and it's used, still used in industry. So every so often we get another issue that comes up. Uh, Lead in water, I might mention lead in water became very a hot issue in the Flint, Michigan story several years ago. Uh, Fortunately, it's not a big issue in central New York. Well, if if lead is ubiquitous, um, it's all around us, we're bound to have some exposure. How how much exposure, uh, when does it become dangerous? Well, that's a good question because lead is a, uh, we say it's a ubiquitous uh, element and it's a... um, it's a toxin that really doesn't uh, pick on any one particular age group. Adults get lead exposure in industry. They get lead exposure in hobbies. Uh, for example, there are people who make their own fishing sinkers. Their hobbies are rifle ranges. Uh, if they're not well ventilated, people get exposed to lead in that, in that way. Um, so there are, there are cosmetics that are imported from other countries. We have a very um, big in- immigrant population that brought with them home remedies and items that may have had lead in them. So lead, lead is unfortunately, is, is everywhere, and it, sometimes it takes a detective to figure out what the source was. But the great majority of exposures in children um, are still in um, lead paint. And the children are most vulnerable because they absorb lead effectively, 
and um, it affects their brains. And that is the part of the body we worry most about. Lead, lead damages liver, damages kidneys, but it's, the issue is long-term effect on the brain. And there's been innumerable studies to show that you know, that kind of exposure, even to low levels of lead exposure, are dangerous. So that basically there's no normal blood lead level. There's no normal blood lead level. It doesn't do any good in the body at all. It's not like any other element that you require, like calcium or iron. Right. Lead is just a toxin. So do the children absorb it um, by breathing it in or by eating it? All or? the above. All of the above. All the above, okay. yeah. They're, they're, most examples are chewing lead paint. And what happens is old paint becomes checkered, dried, and it becomes like something call it like crocodile skin. Mm-hmm. You could peel it off the windowsills, which is really the most common place. And the saddest part is that it tastes sweet. So if you're a t- toddler, a two-year-old who puts hand-to-mouth activity, tries a, a, a paint chip and says, oh, it tastes sweet, it's really almost, almost unfair <laughs> on every level yeah. for the child. Then if you think about what happens when you open in do- windows up and down, open it creates a dust, and so you can inhale it, and lead can be inhaled as well. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't get absorbed through the skin, but mainly through ingestion and inhaling. Those are the main source of exposure. So how do you, um, as an adult or as a parent, um, how do you know your child has been exposed? Are there symptoms to look Okay, for? so that's, that's really the gr- great question because there really are no early symptoms. Uh, the first signs that you tell in retrospect, it's usually retrospect, is constipation uh, because lead affects the nerves actually in the intestines as well, and it reduces peristalsis. So children who've had significant lead exposure oftentimes are constipated, but so are a lot of two-year-olds. Um, children get constipated for a variety of reasons. And so one doesn't make a diagnosis of lead poisoning by symptoms. The only way to know if a child is, has an elevated lead level is to do a blood lead test. Hmm. So if you're found to have an elevated blood level, um, how, import, how, how, how urgent is that? Well, again, that depends on the level. Okay. Um, the New York State Department of Health years ago mandated that all one- and two-year-olds should be tested um, with blood lead tests. And the reason we picked that age group is that, that's, A, that's the most vulnerable age. B, if you identify an elevated blood lead, you can do something to remediate the, the source. So, for example, if you find a one-year-old who has an elevated blood lead level, you can, we go into the home County Health Department, environmental folks go in, look for and try to identify the source, remediate if possible, or remove the child and the family into a lead-safe environment so that that lead exposure doesn't continue. Uh, take Getting a lead test at age one doesn't mean you're home free at age two because the second year of life is really the time when children are the most mobile, they do more hand-to-mouth activity, and so the second year is really the most high-risk year. But you don't want to wait till two to identify exposure if you could identify it at age one and stop the continued stop exposure. It. So that to me is you know, what we in pediatrics keep talking about is primary prevention. You want to prevent exposure in the first place. Yeah, I want, so, to, get, I want to get into that. But before yeah. we go too far down there, yeah. um, you mentioned, is it, is it brain development that's the big issue well, for it's, kids? It's, a brain, it, it's the effect on the brain in multiple areas of the brain. So there are innumerable studies that show that children who've had lead exposure 
as a group, not individual children. You can't do this very well in an individual child, but if you look at a group of children who've had elevated blood lead levels, and I won't even give you the number because it varies from study to study, um, they affects their executive function, their thinking, it affects activity level. Children with, are more likely to be hyperactive, more likely to be um, get into trouble. And then there are some really interesting long-term studies in adolescents and young adults about violent behavior and aggressive behavior. More, most recently, there was a s- series of studies showing that because we, when we removed lead from gasoline in the s- early 70s, 80s, if you go back now, 40 years later, the, the amount of violence in this country has actually have gone down dramatically. And huh. because it didn't happen in all states at once, you can actually track different states and the level of violent behavior in young adults and adults is actually lower by state, state by state, based on when the lead was exposed. Now, that's an association. It's not, you can't prove it in retrospect, but it's definitely an association. So long-term effects of early lead exposure we're learning every day is more and more. You said long-term effects. Does that mean that if you um, have this damage early in life, it doesn't get repaired? Unfortunately. So it's a permanent? Unfortunately. There's no evidence that removing the lead actually makes you better. Yeah, that's the unfortunate part. Well, I've got some more questions, but let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Howard Weinberger. He's the medical director of the Central Eastern Regional Lead Poisoning Prevention Resource Center. So uh, if a child is found, or an adult, is found to have high, abnormally high levels of lead, um, are there treatments for that? How do you fix it? Sure, there are. There are a number of different chemical agents we use. If um, we again, it depends on how high the lead level is. We use an arbitrary number of um, forty to forty-five micrograms per deciliter as the cutoff. When it gets that high, um, recommendation is for, to do something called chelation therapy. Chelation therapy basically means you use this chemical. It's used by injection, either intramuscularly, it's very painful, or intravenously for maybe five days, usually in a hospital. Um, So chelation therapy, um, if you think about last year, 2017, we treated about 13 children in our region, the region being from Albany to halfway to uh, Rochester, with lead levels over 45. Um, it requires, as I say, stay in the hospital about five days, and um, it's painful. It's not an easy thing to do for children, particularly two-year-olds, but it's effective. Um, Does it so remove the lead from it, the blood? It removes the lead from the blood, but it doesn't remove the lead from the rest of the body. In other words, lead gets absorbed into the blood and then it goes into soft tissue and unfortunately goes into bone. Lead and calcium actually kind of compete for space. And so lead will go into bone and can stay there for years. And depending on how long the exposure was and how high it was, it could stay in bone for many, many years. So all we do when we chelate is we remove the lead from the blood. Uh, It can be done very effectively, and then, as I said, someone will, county will go out to the home and make sure the child is no longer in a lead environment, he said with quotes, (laughs) because that's not easy to do, since it's very hard to find lead-free, let alone lead-safe housing. Right. Uh, You go into a house and you find, oh, this is lead paint, 
and you've got a family living there, you have to find a place for them to move to, right? Well, having lead paint on a wall, for example, that's sealed and in good shape isn't a danger. It's kind of like asbestos. If you don't disrupt it, it's not going to be a problem. Okay. The problem is, of course, that many of these old homes, the paint is deteriorated outside the home and it's flaked off from the eaves of the house into the dirt, the strip line around the house in the dirt. It sits there for years and years and years. And in the home, it's very hard to remediate remediate an entire house. It's very expensive. Uh, one of the things we've learned, for example, in the state of Rhode Island, they did a, a, a series of, um, of remediation by removing the windows, window frames and replacing the windows and the doors. That That's where the, you get more bang for the buck because that's where a big exposure occurs when mm. you're opening and closing windows. So re replacing windows and doors are a really, really effective way of remediating an older home. So I saw an estimate um, that one in 10 children in the Syracuse area had elevated lead levels. Is that That's probably close to correct. Again, depending on what level you use as, an, as a level. As I said, there is no normal blood level. We talk about a reference level of being five micrograms per deciliter now. Um, it's probably higher if you use five as a number. There we see, we still see a f quite a few children exposed in Onondaga County, it's ma and mainly in the city, unfortunately. Do do most people have some level of lead in their body? Like, if you did a blood test on yourself, would you be surprised to find? <laughs> I'm not sure what my blood lead level is, having <laughs> grown up in the seventies. In the seventies, before we got lead out of gasoline, I, I guess I should do that someday. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you about primary prevention. You've mentioned it, but um, what is primary prevention? Well, as a pediatrician, that's we always talk about preventing disease. But immunizations is a form of primary prevention. You immunize a child against measles and they don't get measles. You immunize against polio, you don't get polio. Well, you can't immunize against lead. But what we are doing now is when we're testing children at age one and two years of age, what's really called secondary prevention. We're identifying children who've been exposed, who have lead in their body, and then we try to prevent continued exposure. So that's called secondary prevention. Many of us who work in the field have said for years now that what we really should be focusing on is testing the housing before the children get exposed in the first place. We use a comparison of the canary and the mine. You know, they used to take canaries down into mines and the canaries started to keel over from carbon monoxide, then everybody would evacuate. Well, the child shouldn't be the canary in the mine. We should be testing homes, making sure that home is lead free, lead safe before children move in. And that's a big issue because a lot, we have a huge reservoir of older housing in upstate New York, in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Connecticut, New Jersey, all the northeast part of the country is unfortunately most affected. Uh, if you go out further west into some of the newer communities in Washington State, in Arizona, New Mexico, it's not the same issue. And they it's, don't even have the same recommendations about testing as we do here in New York State. Before we run out of time, is there an easy, cost-effective way to accomplish that? You mean removing light from the homes? Or at least testing all oh, the homes? Well, no, it's very expensive. Yeah. Absolutely. It requires a, you know, a commitment from a community. It requires um, landlords to be cooperative. It requires legislation. There is legislation 
now on the Common Council in Syracuse proposed to make sure that all rentals be tested, if not yearly, every couple of years before anyone moves in so that we know. But then you need to have housing available for the child if you find the lead. Wow. And well, that's it's a challenge. It's a big challenge. Continuing issue. I appreciate you being here. My guest has been Dr. Howard Weinberger, the medical director of the Central Eastern Regional Lead Poisoning Prevention Resource Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.